Now, being skillful is not about repeating the same solution to the problem. It's about repeating coming up with solutions to problems. So what you want to do instead of giving an athlete the solution, this is the way you move, give them problems. Try moving it this way. Try with, I'm going to constrain you so you have to do it this way. You have to move it as quickly as possible with both feet together or this, you know. So I like to think about giving athletes problems to solve instead of the solution. That was Rob Gray, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast, starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way, like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout. And I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature in our connection to it and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs, such as Shilijit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, and thanks for being here with us. When it comes to anything we do athletically, so playing a sport, sprinting, lifting weights, or heck, even holding an isometric position, all of these things from the simplest to the most complex, they're still skills. They're still learned skills. There's absolutely tons of things athletes need to learn to be better at baseball or volleyball or soccer or whatever. There's also things athletes need to learn to be better at even the most basic rudimentary things in the gym. Learning and how we learn and understanding that is going to help give us a better picture of the direction that we are um, having athletes travel. With learning as well, this is also highly applicable whether it's youth athletes and probably even more applicable with youth athletes, especially looking at how youth sports are often coached. But whether it's working with youth, with intermediate level athletes, or collegiate and professionals, ultimately learning is just such a massive part of the equation. And so instead of just thinking about things in terms of sets and reps and drills, if we can just zoom out and look at it in just on the level of learning and how humans learn. It is so beneficial to the practice of guiding athletes in an ideal path on their journey. So our guest today is Rob Gray. Rob is a professor at Arizona State University, and he's the host of the Perception and Action podcast. Rob is a motor learning and movement expert. Rob's work focuses not just on theory of motor learning and movement, but how do we apply motor learning to address real-world challenges. Rob has consulted with numerous professional and even governmental entities. And he's developed a virtual reality baseball training system that has been used in over 25 published studies. Rob is also the author of the book, How We Learn to Move, A Revolution in the Way We Coach and Practice Sports Skills, which I read that just over a month ago. I bought the book and it has totally blown my mind. And the more I think of things from just that learning perspective, always having that frame of mind, it is just so valuable. So on the show today, Rob will be getting into 
constraints-led approach to technical development. He'll share his thoughts on the idea of perfect technique and drills and, and that mentality to training. And then he'll speak about how to utilize, conversely, a constraints-led approach and how to understand variability. He'll speak on what is good variability and bad variability. And he'll also talk about how do we utilize variability and movement variability in practice with younger or novice athletes? And then how does that variability change as athletes become more towards that expert end of things? And it's just so valuable, no matter who you work with, whether it's youth, middle school, high school, college, pro, there is something in this podcast for you, no matter where you're at. And it'll also help you to understand the whole spectrum, this whole journey of learning our movements, our sport, our skills. There's just so much good stuff in here, no matter where you are. It was really great to have Rob on the show, and I'm excited to get you guys this podcast. Let's get on to it. Episode 293 with Rob Gray. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here, man. My pleasure, Joel. I've wrote so many questions for this show, so I already know <laughs> that I'm not going to get through nearly all of them, and I'm excited to hopefully have you on again. I already like already already know like I'll be asking you again at some point. So, uh, but kind of an icebreaker. I just think that's something that's super interesting that I read in your book was the story of Tim Tebow, and I actually don't watch a ton of of sports and team sports. I think I just have a lot of other things going on, but. I found that story really fascinating, and I think it would be a cool like segue into our chat. So could you tell us a little bit about the story of Tim Tebow and why his NFL career wasn't successful from a perspective of variability and motor learning? Yeah, so the idea there is, you know, Tim Tebow, obviously one of the best college quarterbacks ever, you know, he's super successful. His technique for throwing, he holds a ball quite low, relative, you know, down near the you know, middle of his chest. Which there's a great, if you Google it, you can ESPN Sports Science uh, series they did. They actually analyzed the kind of movement pattern. And what it does, it make, takes him a little bit longer to get the ball out in, when he throws than someone like Tom Brady who holds it up high. So that kind of, the idea there is he developed this technique that worked in college. But then when you get to the pros where the constraints, the word we use is constraints are changed. And things get a little faster. The, all the linemen are a little faster. The linebackers are a little faster. He has less time. That technique is causing him to not get the ball out, get it deflected, get hit and fumbled. And what, what I tried to emphasize in that paper is it's very hard to make that little change, actually, because you develop kind of once you have a really well-learned pattern like that, it's very hard to change it. And he tried and he tried and he had a little bit of a career, obviously, in the NFL, but he couldn't quite get to that new throwing technique, even though it's it's a pretty subtle difference. Yeah, I, I kind of want to ask you, like, after we go through all the variability stuff, but maybe I'll just cheat and ask you now oh, is okay. like, I mean, obviously, it's always easy to say I would do this and this, but like someone like Tebow, who brought the ball too low, I'm sure there was tons of like internal cues, just hold the ball higher, blah, blah, blah. Like what, mm-hmm. you know, if you were that consultant in that situation, what are some things that you think could have possibly helped him to be mm-hmm. able to get a quicker release? Yeah, that's the, the traditional way that is like, let's give him the new solution. The better way that I like to promote in the book is let's, let's develop a practice that may, lets him find a new way on his own. So doing simple things like changing the constraints, making the linemen start a bit closer so he has less time, putting some, you could even do some sort of barrier, put some chalk on his hands where he's getting feedback about their position on the body. So just kind of getting him, you know, the, the basic idea, the constraints that approach, 
what can we do in practice to make it so that won't work anymore? <laughs> like, what crazy things can we come up with? And then not giving them the answer, but trying to push them to tr- find something different. That's a basic idea. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I I mean, it's funny. Like I'm like my background is strength and conditioning, track and field, like more mm-hmm. kind of closed stuff. I guess you could, relative mm-hmm. to, but I I just love this stuff because it's all learning. And I mean, you could get. Tim Tebow as fast as he wanted to, or, you know, whatever in the weight room. But if the guy can't, you know, I mean, it's just really cool how that end product formulates. And in my mind, I'm like, well, what if you had some sort of apparatus, like a, I don't know, like a, a tutu, but like, a, you know, almost like a skirt that went straight out, right? And yeah. you can't put yeah. his arm below it. <laughs> a hula hoop or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah. 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 You could design something crazy. I'm sure. Yeah. Part of the, the reason I love this kind of movement, the new coaching is you have to be creative as a coach. If the idea is just like that. Yeah. There's room for doing crazy new things instead of the same old boring drills. So, so I, yeah, for sure. That's a cool, uh, good, good example. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that I think for people listening, whether you're on the you know track or swim or speed side or the weight room or your sport coaching and sports skills or just some, I mean, I view learning as so transcendent, but one of the things I wanted to get your take on is the idea of perfect technique. And I see coaches say this all the time. Oh yeah, dude, this is the perfect technique for this thing. And I, I swear it's like a marketing tool for in so often because they, it's like, you don't have this and I'm going to give this to you, you know, like kind of drives me nuts. Anyway, sorry, I'm I'm going off on a little rant, but like, <laughs> no, what's, no. what's your take on perfect technique? And then talk a little bit on like variability in elite performers versus amateurs. Yeah, that's kind of the thing, you know, I, I start the book with, I, I think the first chapter is called the myth of the one correct technique, or you could say perfect technique too. That's kind of, you know, we've you know, lots of research and lots of looking at athletes shows. There's not only is there not one way to do things, you know. I could show you just a shadow of Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, and you could tell which one's which. If they were doing the same movements, how would you know, <laughs> right? They, they do things differently. But also the kind of fundamental message that comes from this researcher Bernstein I talk a lot about in the book is you can't just do one, things one way. There can't be one perfect ideal way because the world is not staying perfect the same around you, right? Everything's changing around you and within you. Like, as you know, as a strength and conditioning coach, you get fatigued, you get muscle damage, essentially, when you work out, when you recover. So all everything's swirling and changing around you. If you stay the same, you would not be successful, right? And that's Bernstein's classic phrase. You need repetition, repeating, to repeat a successful outcome, you need it without repetition of movement. In order to respond to all the changes going around you, you have to change and adapt, right? That's so there's there can't be one perfect way to do things for sure. That's not to say there's not some key features mm-hmm. of a good movement, right? I'm sure as you know, we we're talking about sprinting. There's certain key features that every good sprinter has, but it's not everything the same and not everything repeatable for sure. Yeah, I like that you brought up the two tennis players, Federer and Nadal. I, I worked with tennis for seven or eight years when I was at UC Berkeley. And I remember in my time there, I would, we did a lot of medicine ball work we had in the weight room. We had the good fortune of having like these really like solid wall boards. And so, you know, I was always the type of person, like any little thing I can do to improve some sort of transfer, I was always going to try to do it. And I remember just like a side throw, like a medicine ball side throw. I was like, oh, well, what's a good technique for this for a tennis player? I find myself thinking, and then I'm like, 
to throw it fast, I'm thinking like a baseball swing or like even like I was a javelin thrower. So I had this like stiff block leg, front leg that blocks right in my mind. And then I'm, I'm like, okay, maybe they should do that. And then I'm like watching them on the court and literally every single shot is different. Like every <laughs> other shot, their block leg is doing something different, depending if they're moving towards the ball or away from the ball. That was a big factor in changing what that block leg did. And then I'm kind of like, all right, so if I'm telling them to do this, like what, like, I don't know, like maybe it will help them a little bit for this instance, but even then, do they really need max power in that scenario? And I'm kind of like, I don't know, maybe just do a bunch of medicine ball throws, move in some different directions. Like maybe you could have the outcome of a, if you had a speed gun on the ball or something, but to, to think there's this like technique that's going to one throw technique, that's going to help this tennis player. And then I watched all the ways. And I know you said that in the book, like, Nadal like is any one hit gonna be the same like he probably will never have any single hit that's exactly all the same vectors for sure yeah yeah no for sure I think you know I heard a great quote I think it was Ed Cullen the other day I saw on Twitter you know being skillful is not about repeating the same solution to the problem it's about repeating coming up with solutions to problems so what you want to do instead of giving an athlete the solution this is the way you move Give them problems. Try moving it this way. Try with, I'm going to constrain you so you have to do it this way. You have to move it as quickly as possible with both feet together or this, you know. So think that I like to think about giving athletes problems to solve instead of the solution. I think that's exactly what you were talking about there with the medicine ball example, instead of trying to get them the ideal way to move it. So yeah, the, the process of solving movement problems is how you become skillful. And problems, plural, right? Not always the same exact thing. Yeah. You mentioned this before, Rob, but it definitely bears bringing up the question. You said there are, like in sprinting, there are facets of sprinting that you need to be like in the bandwidth of to eventually mm -hmm. be elite. And that, I think, would bring us towards, well, people would say you need to learn the fundamentals. And I know you talked about this in your book. So could you speak on like those key attractors or those key pieces of a skill that do fall into a, an elite's bandwidth. Like you're not going to have just like this total sloppy, like, you know, like total amateurish, like shot pattern. I mean, there are some or sprint pattern. There's mm -hmm. definitely some key attractors. So how do you keep those in mind in the process of learning as an athlete's going through that learning process? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Joel. I think for me, like the key attractors, you know, like one of them, in almost all sports is transferring force effectively, like keeping the kinetic chain intact. If I want to run fast I, or swing fast or throw hard, I need to transfer the force from the ground, keep it in my big body parts, my lower body, and put it in my wrist or whatever the last part is going to be at the last, <laughs> you know, because so transferring force effectively, you know, a friend's box would talk about things like co-contraction and things to do that. Yeah, so I think there's some key principles like that um, that we need to do. The problem with the fundamentals idea is that you can train those out of context, <laughs> right? You could pull it and break it apart. For example, slowing a movement really way down, right? When you do a really slow, slow motion version of a movement, the constraints that make those invariants come out or gone. <laughs> those attractors come out, right? The reason that you need to do those things is gone. So it's not likely you're going to develop them and then plugging them back into the movement is, is the same, the same way. So I much prefer getting the person right into the game or the activity. And then as a coach, it's almost like the Tim Debo, going back to the Tim Debo, you let someone run 
And then you see, okay, that that's not going to work the, the way they place their foot. And then come up with some constraint that takes away maybe their, um, you know, their not stride length is not long so long enough. So you put something on the ground they have to step over, right? So instead of trying to give them these attractors first, then plugging it into the actual action, I'd rather start with the action and then pull back <laughs> with constraints once as a coach. So it doesn't mean as a coach you just have to let everything go, but I'd rather do it that way around. Yeah, and that's where I think it like a straw man gets created against uh, constraints led or mm-hmm. it's it becomes oh you're just gonna let athletes do anything however they want right but it's like no they're we're bringing in things that will constrain and it's basically just making them be problem solvers not necessarily a free-for-all exactly exactly and the, the real issue with the things like uh, the fundamentals like dribbling around cones is there's no problem there right you just given them a solution, go left, go right, go left, go right. There's no problem to solve or decision to make or constraints to satisfy other than making the coach happy with this kind of aesthetic mm-hmm. movement, right? Whereas we, but we, what we want is you to solve problems with real constraints. I have to get down that end of that thing as fast as possible. I have to get over these hurdles. I have to do, you know, so, so yeah, that's the way I like to think about it. When Andy Ryland was, uh, he works for USA Football, was on the podcast, I think maybe two, three years ago, he was talking about, I believe, I I would have to go and check this quote, but with like young athletes, like 10 years old, praising them a lot more for just making a good decision than having, I guess you could say good form or whatever. Do you Mm -hmm. think, would you agree with that, that you would say that is way more important or especially in like team sport, obviously, like early on versus any sort of because the decision will derive the technique as people get stronger and better and more. What's your take on like that decisions versus or any any technique early on or looking at technique? Yeah, that's a good. I, I think you need a a bit of both, but I definitely agree. I like that. You know, we kind of I think in general we don't give an athletes enough chances to make decisions in sports. So you know, you know, yeah, deciding to smash a ball and then using the wrong technique and not achieving it. I think, I think it's a good idea. You're right to, you're right. That was a good, you know, good decision, good idea. And, and I think you kind of need to do a bit of both, but then maybe keep that in the back of your mind is okay. What kind of constraint can I come up with Mm -hmm. to get them to do so they're successful? But yeah, I think I agree with that generally. Blood work is a common analysis in the regime of elite athletes. It quantifies many dimensions and metrics of an athlete's physiology and helps one to see windows of potential performance improvement. Today's episode is also sponsored by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. The company uses a blood test and patented algorithm to analyze your body's physiological markers, providing you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you. Inside Tracker then offers science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. In using Inside Tracker myself, it was truly fascinating to see the many metrics of my own physiology, looking at things like hormone levels, inflammation, blood oxygen-related metrics, and much more. If you are interested in an Inside Tracker analysis, for a limited time you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. And to get that discount, head to insidetracker.com/justflysports. Cool. So with that, I guess the idea of, of developing technique, developing attractors, if I have a sport like ten, or tennis or baseball, uh, I know you do a ton of work with baseball and I'm having baseball players you know, come up through the years. 
what's your approach towards, I guess, making sure the attractors are in place? I mean, I guess in the perfect world, an athlete could just go and play and play a bunch of sports and maybe some variations, you know, the sports Mm -hmm. with other like hockey, right? There's different ways you're swinging something and, and they maybe hit those attractors by themselves. It's funny, even my, my son, he's three now. I remember he was two and we were, we were just about to leave Berkeley and the neighbors would play in like the backyard. And it was funny because we had a little toy bat and like he would kind of swing it without any sort of like, I guess you could say like good stance leg or using his lower body at all. And then one day just out of the blue, like the neighbor got ready to throw him a ball and he just gets in this very good stance, like totally ready to ship. And I was like, where did that even come from? Like, (laughs) how, like, where is this? It's just crazy. All I say is I just say like, I mean, the perfect world, right, is like the athlete just goes through their sport and the, the technique, the attractors of the technique just come together. And so, what's your take on if an athlete is like missing an attractor or like, you know, they're maybe age 10 or 12 or 14 and there's part of their swing that's not there or whatever your, you know, whatever your sport is. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I think there's a couple of things there. One is variability in practice. So, variability within your sport. Like I think a key feature of the attractors is their general, they'll work in a lot of conditions. Like uh, the basic attractors for running allow you to run uphill, downhill on when it's slippery, right? They're the same kind of principles. Whereas if we let people, the typical way we practice is very isolated, same low variability conditions. And in those situations, we're really in a way efficient learners. Like if you give me a shortcut, I'm going to take it. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to, like Tim Depot, I'm going to develop a, an attractor, a, a movement pattern that works for the situation I'm in. So the, a critical thing, one critical thing is giving people lots of variability in practice, building up to it so that they, they get movement solutions, attractors that are going to work under a wide range of conditions and they learn how to adapt them for different scenarios. So, and then the kind of the way we talked about before, if there's something they're not doing, thinking up a constraint you know, I actually do this with athletes. Sometimes, you know, you get younger athletes that have been bigger than other kids their whole life. So they've learned like one solution, power through <laughs> like in team sports, mm-hmm. like hockey. And I'll actually try to come up with constraints, like rules in, in a game, like you can't to try to get, take that away from them, get them to explore other things. So I think that's kind of the two, making sure the conditions are variable enough that these things have to come out to order to be successful. And then kind of constraining when there's something you want to change, you want to get them to a better technique. You know, another one, an example I could give is in baseball, back catcher, you know, you you see young kids catch the ball with their hand glove without getting their body behind it, which which is fine unless you get a pitch in the dirt and then it's going to go behind. You have a million. So one of the constraints we do is, okay, you have to block the ball with your hands behind your back. Like, and, and so we just take away that thing and try to push them to something else so yeah those are the two main things i would say cool yeah so basically let them go and then if they demonstrate that they're really missing an attractor then create a constraint rather than coaching them into some preconceived position that would be indicative of quote-unquote perfect yeah, form yeah them a constraint I think, to help them along yeah rather than going the other direction here's the form you need let's repeat it over and over then you got to plug it into the context and learn when to use it and how to use it I'd rather start the other way, <laughs> start with you making decisions when, you know, and it, that's a hard sell. I totally understand to people and it's a bit more difficult, but I really do believe in the long run, that's a better way to do it. I would imagine too, with constraints, like you can use constraints 
within the scope of like a heated practice too versus it's probably really hard to do i mean drills right like and i loved in the book by the way too is like the drill came from using a drill to like you know get like <laughs> yeah. to really drill yeah, that hole of it, yeah yeah it, it, it's also you know i think in the book it's the it's a military you know the idea that we're going to pound it into you so that under the comp pressure of competition it will just come out reflexively almost without thinking about it which I don't think that's the way we want athletes to be. I think we want them to be connected with their environment and be able to adapt and adjust on their own, use their talent to be creative problem solvers, not robots <laughs> that oh. have these programs drilled into them. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's where I feel like the constraints led approach could be so much more versatile. Whereas drills, you can't, I don't feel like you can do drills with like a competitive environment. Like it's always just people in place on their own, just doing whatever. There's not like, Ball. I mean, maybe there's balls being thrown, but it's, it's not like they have to deal with other players or decisions. It's like more about you and the movement. Whereas I feel like if you have constraints in the system, you can have other players. It's just there's a constraint on it that's going to help you drive that attractor that you need to get better at. Yeah, totally. You know, the, the one of the kind of reasons you do the drills, like decomposed drills, like in baseball, like hitting the ball off the tee. You're trying to take away all those natural variations and competition things to make it simpler for the athlete. Um, whereas constraints, I would rather do something like having you hit a bigger ball or pitching slower, like simplifying things without taking away the actual act of hitting something coming move, that's moving at you, keeping the, the essential element of the game in there for sure and manipulating the constraints instead of breaking it all into pieces. So Rob, when it comes to variability, I found this interesting. I'd love it if you could go into this a little bit more, but basically like how much variability do elite athletes exhibit in their skills versus an amateur or a novice as they, you kind of go along that spectrum? Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. Well, I think the, there's an interesting answer. I think it depends on how you measure variability. If you kind of just measure overall variability, you do see experts tend to reduce. They're more consistent in their movements in some ways. But what you see is actually, I, I say, it's not that there's more or less, it's different types, right? So in an expert, there's a great study on baseball pitching showing this, that when an expert baseball pitcher throws, they don't use the same elbow, you know, shoulder rotation and elbow flexion on every pitch. Those things vary. In a novice pitcher, those things vary just randomly. <laughs> You're just inconsistent. One time you use your, too much rotation, one time you lose less. In an expert pitcher, those vary too, but they vary together, right? Uh -huh. If I over-rotate my shoulder, I do less elbow extension. So they're working. So the variability is not gone. It's, it's a different type. Of, it's functional variability to compensate for kind of differences in my movement when I get fatigued. So yeah, so it, it does depend. Experts do tend to be more consistent about certain aspects of their movement, but and in, in the other show, you you know, I found this in kind of some of the hitting stuff in baseball. The, it depends what type <laughs> you're measuring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, 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 there's good and bad variability I kind of talk about in the book. Yeah. Actually, could you get into that a little bit with the good and the bad? Because I, I would love to understand that more and, and how to maybe, like maybe see that more so. I mean, it sounds like it's the bad variability is if you don't have good like attractors wells. Mm -hmm. Like you're you have... It's like you're trying to steer a car with three wheels and they're all going different directions and you're just quickly trying to get it going in the right. Whereas a, an elite mm. athlete, basically, maybe they had just have two wheels or one wheel and it's still moving around, but it's 
they're just in generally better control of it. Like I'm, I'm doing a rally car race and I have one wheel and mm-hmm. it's like all over the place, but I at least have control versus trying to go on like a flat road with three wheels. And I'm just trying to, I don't know. I was just, that's what it came to my yeah. head, but I'm curious. Yeah, no, I think, that. you know, the, the essential idea is, is good variability is any kind of variability that keeps you on your goal, right? Keeps the goal, achieving your goal. It's, we call it good. It probably should be called potentially good because it allows you to, the idea is it's going to allow you to adapt. So the example a lot of people give is, you know, imagine I gave you a task. You had to push down on a, a surface so that the combined force in your hands was 10 newtons, right? Good variability would be doing six in one hand and four in the other, or nine in one hand and one in the other because my other hand's getting tired, right? Those are still adding up to 10, achieving my goal, but they're allowing me to do the solution in a different way. Bad variability is just kind of messy <laughs> inconsistency, mm-hmm. like going from six in each hand to five. In each, that's not my, I've not met my goal. That's what novices do. They're just inconsistent in their movements where experts tend to have this kind of functional, we call, sometimes we call it a motor synergy, things working and varying together is, is kind of what we mean by good variability. Cool. So yeah. uh, another question with variability, I think, I love learning about sports skills like this. This could just be about I mean, I didn't I just played baseball when I was a kid, but this whole podcast (laughs) could be about baseball and I'd be totally happy. Like it's to me, I just (laughs) love learning about learning. But for the sake of uh, I think that maybe the common language or that common like meetup point for wherever you're on the spectrum is always like sprinting or running. But when it comes to something like sprinting or swimming or any like individual kind of closed chain Mm -hmm. repetitive skill, what are we looking for? Like, is that going to be a lot less variable relative to like maybe different ways you could pitch or swing a tennis racket or I like like pole vault and track and field. There's so much like, you know, there's so much going on there or a golf swing. Like what's, Mm -hmm. what, you know, if we're looking at all this spectrum of skills, how do we approach how tight the attractor should be versus when we're looking at different things? Yeah. Well, that's, that's a good question. I think I always say, you know, kind of the variability in your movement has got to be proportional to the variability in the conditions of your task. Right. Like running down a field as an NFL running back is incredibly variable. Mm-hmm. You have a million people coming from you in different directions. Whereas sprinting, running and sprinting is way, way less variable. Relatively speaking, the conditions are very the same. But I guess the key point that Bernstein and a lot of us want to make is they're not exactly the same, <laughs> right? There's, there's conditions that change the, the actual weather, you know, the wind, the, your fatigue level. So you, you're, although your movement is going to be less variable than a, a running back, it still needs that functional variability. And, and um, you know, with swimming, there's some great work on, um, you know, there's this work I talk about in the book by Wolfgang Schulhorn on coordination profiling, where they actually measure swimmers' movement patterns, different like how symmetrical their stroke are, is, how long they stay underwater. And they can actually train a machine learning thing to recognize different swimmers hmm. uh, and distinguishes from them each other just based on the pattern of, of these changes that are occurring. And even like three years later, they can say, oh, that's the same guy, <laughs> um, which, which is quite amazing. You know, it suggests that they're doing something different and doing something functional. But, but yeah, and I think, you know, the, the, you need that to think about that as a coach. You also need to think about that in terms of the skill level of your athlete like a a relatively novice or young athlete's going to bring a lot of their own variability. They're inconsistent. How they stand. (laughs) So you don't want to overwhelm them by using tens of different kinds of balls and different speeds. You want to 
kind of add relatively smaller amount of variability. And, and then once they get more skilled, you can kind of increase that. And the other end, so for a little plug here, I'm, I'm working on a kind of follow-up book that's going to be more at the elite end. So I would say this book I wrote is about kind of coordination and control, establishing the basic coordination pattern for a movement. What I want to talk about in the next one is more optimizing it, right? How do you squeeze the most out of that movement pattern you can? And from that, I think, so I think you go from low variability to higher variability in practice. Then at the elite level, you need focused variability. You, you want to focus it around some specific thing you want to work on. So I definitely think, you know, that you have to think about and analyze your task, your, your coaching. And, and how, it's not just a blanket, all variability in practice is good. You have to use it in a sensible way. Yeah. I'd like to actually get into, and I'm definitely, you know, when the pre-order for that book is out, let me know. I'll be the first one to (laughs) sign up for it. But I learned so much from the world of swimming. I'm glad you brought that up because swimming, and it's interesting, I've been a track coach for a lot of my career. And as I was reading your book, I keep thinking about the perception and the action. And in team sport, it's super rich. Like there's players Mm -hmm. and there's strategy and there's a ball flying around or whatever. But in track, it's like, well, where's the perception? Well, it's in the ground uh, coming up. What's Mm -hmm. coming up through your foot? You know, like it's Mm -hmm. a little bit less, but it's still there. But in swimming, you have more, you have the water, you have different water tensions on different parts of your body you have. And I learned a lot through that. And I, when I was at UC Berkeley, there was a swim uh, consultant who worked with the women's program. And I learned so much from him. And he was talking Mm -hmm. about how in like the Fijian islands or the Pacific islands, the swimmers there were just so pure. Their technique was so, and obviously not coach, mm-hmm. they just grew up in the water in the, with the waves and all the variability. And so, um, mm-hmm. the women's team at Cal would, on their train trip to Hawaii, would swim in the ocean for like the variability. So they didn't get locked into this, like, oh, we're just, and, and I think about that too with like, you know, it's a flat track or actually I had the good fortune, Al Vermeil, a strength coach a lot of people are familiar with. He's actually, like, he's almost my neighbor here in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And we had lunch once and, and he was talking, he's like, yeah, when I was a kid, you know, the, none of the fields were flat. There's all like bumps on them and stuff. And, mm-hmm. and, and so anyways, I'll, I'll, I'm only take, I say all that too. You talk about how uh, the young athlete, it br- they bring a lot of variability that exists mm-hmm. in the table. So if I'm like on a flat track, trying to teach them just flat track speed, for example, maybe it wouldn't be a good idea to throw a bunch of crap in the way, right? Like I just, they, or, or, or what do you think, like what's your take on that? Like teaching like something super simple to like a young versus a more elite. Like if we're looking at flat track sprinting, no one's trying to hit you. Yeah, I think it's it's still good to have some. And it, it reminded me, you know, you were talking, I do have kind of in the book, I talk about some of Luis Uhara's work where he's looked at soccer players in Brazil and how they, you know, they, Young players mm-hmm. have to play on streets and beaches with unequal number of players. They have to play against kids that are way older than them with rocky things. So in the same way you're talking about swimming, I think we think on the surface, we want to say those athletes are a disadvantage because they don't have a perfect pool, Olympic pool mm-hmm. to practice in or a nice groomed field in a, in a soccer academy. But I'm not saying that you have to move them out to a beach. I'm just saying that it might be actually counterproductive to make everything perfect in the same all the time like we do. So yeah, I I definitely think, you know, variability kind of right from the start. Mm. Uh, But yeah, I think you just, I I would like some there, you know, not trying to get a kid to do the same shot in tennis from the same direction, add different directions and stuff. Just, you just kind of temper it and make sure it's, you know, not having vast changes in speed where you're smashing it at them sometimes. And 
things like that. So I, I would really like to see some variability all the time as much as possible to get that adaptability going right from the start. But you, you do right. You do need to, you know, you can judge it kind of by their performance success. You know, if they're really struggling, then you don't, you know, you got to take it back a bit for sure. Got it. So like, yeah. So just for the sprinting on a, it's just funny as we talk, I'm like, man, just sprinting on a flat track with no one trying to hit you or throw anything at you. Yeah. It's like, it's so like, it's just the the simplest thing compared to like yeah. everything else that could be out there. But again, it's, it's a common language like when I was coaching club track, like kids like nine to 14, I eventually, as I, the years went on, I eventually evolved into like, I would put little mini, low mini hurdles out for them to run over. And I would just say, all right, just run over these with one hand, you know, one arm at a time or, and then you can bring the other one in later and just kind of letting them explore. Like that was the variability, I guess I gave them. Yeah. But, and for the older athletes, like occasionally, and for myself, I like doing this was just be like those mini hurdles put them like subtly random distances just and, and yeah and yeah. Chris, so they yeah. can't use the same number of steps in yeah. between and yeah for sure and then and then you can you know as you go up you know you can get into we don't in, actually getting them to do things that are totally unlike the actual like running sprinting uphill or sprinting downhill just you, you learn you learn about the solution space like I'm, I'm becoming more and more a believer in that and trying to do something that you know, in basketball, trying to shoot the ball so it deliberately hits off the back rim and comes back to you. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. why would you ever want to do that? Because doing that requires you learn the relationship between your movement and giving a new problem to solve. And that's going to make you better at solving the actual problem you want, putting it in the middle of the hoop. So we're not going for, here's the one solution, do it over and over. Let's learn how to solve mo related movement problems. So yeah, so yeah, and I like your example. The hurdles is a great example. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. Simplyfaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource, not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In simplyfaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system, bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines, such as the K-Box, and also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units such as the 1080 Sprint, force plates, and much more. You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, yeah. I like that too with the basketball. It, it's just a, an aside. Um, my mind gets a little ADHD sometimes. But I, like when I was a basketball player growing up, like my big sports were basketball and track. And I was way better at track because I didn't manage competition well, just to say, <laughs> just for one thing. So as I read, I'm like, man, I should have practiced. Like I literally just shot around, like I would shoot around for hours a day and just mm -hmm. trying to make it right. But it's like, it's like, man, like, I mean, obviously the one, I should have played with other people more often in all sorts of different situations that would have helped. But then like, not just necessarily even trying to make it every time. Can you hit it off the back rim? Can you hit it off the front of the rim? Can you, mm -hmm. I, I mean, just so many different ways to do it. And so back to the, the track thing, just quickly. So like, beginners still variability definitely should be present like kids on the playground of course like mm -hmm. we, we definitely want that 
as they're starting to learn skills, still some variability present. Yeah. And it could be as simple as sprinting uphill or downhill too. I guess yeah, I wasn't even for sure. That's yeah, definitely variability. I wasn't, when I was thinking of variability, I was like, oh yeah, that's variability yeah. too, for sure. Mm-hmm. But then as they get like, like expert level, like I've gone through it all. I, I have the attractors at that point, just with the context of sprinting, any thoughts on like what an expert variability would be now that we've kind of have a storage of motor patterns. And now I'm not trying to challenge their variability on a, an elite level on that. Yeah, I think at that level, I think you just want to focus in and use some of the analytics tools you have, use some assessment tools to have to kind of identify purposely kind of specific things you want to work on, like getting out of the blocks Mm -hmm. and then have variability focused around how could I change the block setup? How could I change the timing Mm -hmm. to kind of very focus it around that? So I'm going to really develop that one part of it instead of broad, broad, very more broad variability, like, it, it, you know, going back to baseball, you know, broad variability is just changing the pitches and varying the speed focus variability is like when I get a, a batter, I want you to not swing at these pitches yeah. <laughs> in this area, high pitches or something like that. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's just identifying being deliberate about what you want to work on and focusing the variability around that. How can I change your solution for getting out of the box? I'm just going to work on that. Got like it. That. Yeah. So just go into that very specific attractor well that needs yeah, work. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're focusing your constraints or variability yeah. on that. Oh, no. Yeah. Because I think, you know, I think the idea is just, you know, the efficiency of practice, doing something like that with a, a, a lesser skilled athlete is kind of a waste of time because mm-hmm. you're really not going to get that much out of that <laughs> relative to the amount they could learn by the amount they could gain by just getting a better overall running coordination pattern, where as at the really lead end, that's what you're trying to do. Squeeze right the last little bit out. And that's all you can do. If you have the, the good running coordination, you know, we do have to work on squeezing those little bits out. So it definitely has a different focus. Yeah. Yeah. That makes yeah. all the sense in the world. Plus too, like a young athlete or a novice, it's like to say, you need to get better at this specific. It's like yeah, you know, early, yeah. early specialization, you know, like that too. It's just, uh, yeah. Yeah. I talk about that in the, you know, youth coaching and, and, fo- you know, I think obviously when you, you're getting up to elite, you have elite athletes, you, you, you know, everyone I've worked with have very different motivation and focus and stuff than other people. Um, so, you know, they're willing to put in those really focused drills. And I, I still think it's more, it makes it more interesting than doing really rote technique drills anyway. Yeah. I like how you use the word interesting. When I spent time with Rafe Kelly, who I know you've been on his podcast, yeah. which was excellent. Rafe used the word interesting probably more than a lot, oh, really? a lot of things to describe <laughs> situations. And so I, I, I like that. Uh, yeah, uh, I think, it, you know, it's a, it's a game, right? Mm-hmm. These are, they're supposed to be fun, right? We don't really play in no other thing. Do we play boring games? Usually <laughs> in video games, people choose it fun and interesting ones, things like that. But we, sometimes we make things boring in sports for no good reason. I don't think. Yeah. 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 I feel like if the yeah. athlete is laughing and smiling, then you're probably generally on the right track with yes. whatever you're doing. Yeah. yeah. I had, um, one of the volleyball coaches I work with, um, they, told me they they change their warm-ups they do in, in practice from the traditional oh let's stretch this body part mm-hmm. they play dodgeball oh, or yeah. they do some weird thing and he said the way they judge it's it's enough if they've warmed up enough is by how loud and laughing once they're really loud and laughing then they're warmed up <laughs> we don't know to do any hurdler stretches or any of these things you know they're warmed up i love it yeah oh yeah. that's that's so cool 
uh, yeah, I would, I would have had a similar kind of thing with my the tennis players at Cal. Mm-hmm. I switched from just a kind of a boring yeah, stretch and movement mm-hmm. prep thing to games. And then when they were emotionally ready, then we'd, we'd get going. Something I, I really liked with that, um, like Brazilian soccer fo- football mm-hmm. example. And, and you had mentioned in the book, like the Brazilian athletes are known for their just like like natural, super quick ability to make decisions mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. you had said too, like I, this is something I thought was interesting, and I've I've heard this in just education, just period, with uh, like non traditional. Is you had older and younger players on the field together, so you had this like crazy feel with just maybe bumps and divots, and then it's like you have different ages playing together, and it's like I remember I was doing um some Alexander technique instruction from a local practitioner, and she's also really into education and some alternative education styles, and the school she had sent her kids to, I think it might have been in Israel or something when she lived there, but. It would be kids who weren't all in the same age group either, like kids in Mm. classrooms who are because the older kids, I guess, behave better on the younger kids and the younger kids look up to the older kids. And I was like, I saw that with the soccer. And I was like, well, you know, that was actually my history when I was in elementary school is before school, I was dropped off early and all the kids would play and I'm playing against kids like three years older, but also a couple of years younger. And I don't think we ever look at that either. Like that's I just thought that was a really cool example of that culture and the roots of uh, those roots of their sport process. Yeah, for sure. And I think that ties into, you know, the one of the things I wanted to get across and I keep emphasizing, you know, learning is about being challenged and it's about making mistakes, right? It's in a, being in an environment where you look bad sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not, you don't learn anything when you do everything perfect every time. So, uh, you know, being pushed and challenged sometimes by, by older kids, I think it's definitely good. Obviously, you can't, you can take it too far if you get, mm-hmm. can't handle it, but but um, yeah, I think that that challenge and being in an environment where you're pushing yourself, willing to make mistakes is really the best for learning. What's your take on variability or the ability to be, I guess, probably the good variability, right? But like mm-hmm. that and injury. Uh, you wrote some really interesting yeah. things about that in the book. So I'd love it if you explained a little yeah, bit Yeah, this is one of the most exciting parts of this to me because there's been some really, a couple really nice studies on this. A few, actually more than a couple of you. The idea that, not all, variability is not only good for performance and needed to, for performance, variability in movement to be able to handle your changing environment, but actually it might be a route to less injuries because it makes total sense. You know, if, if I don't move the same way every time, I'm not putting the same stresses on the same joints, the same ways, the same angles, same positions. I'm, I'm, I'm decreasing the chance that I'm, I'm going to get injured. And there's actually some great work in, in soccer, these couple studies where they've train people with different coaching methods that promote less or more variability. And the one study they measured, they did a change of direction test and they measured markers for ACL injury, both kinematic and force forces. And they found they, they were much lesser in the athletes that were kind of trained to be more variable in their movement. And um, I found in a couple of studies um, that low variability is actually a hallmark of kind of injury. It's something after you're recovering from injury, you kind of get lower variability in your movement. So yeah, I think that's a really exciting new angle to this to me because you know you as much as you, you talk about as, as you, I'm sure as a coach skill acquisition and giving people the skill, the frustration of losing it when you get injured and keeping people on the field. I think in a lot of team sports, that's going to be where the big win is, as much as it is getting them good in the first place. So I think that that's a really exciting avenue. 
Yeah. Is there any way, like, <laughs> I'm always thinking, how do I rig something up if I don't have the equipment, right? Like to, and I think coaches might intuitively see it, but just how to tell if an athlete is having better variability. The, the thing that comes to mind is maybe like, I mean, you could just have them stand on one leg and how quickly can they make adjustments to not fall over, but maybe like just having someone do like a single leg line hop and just noticing, because I, I swear if I look back on this, I'm trying to like put this mental picture of like, the Cal, mm. the tennis players I used to work with, like it almost seemed like the ones who were a little bit less athletic and more injury prone would just be kind of more of the staccato. Like they, they had the same, whereas the more athletic ones, I swear, had a little bit more dynamicness to that hop. I, I just wonder if there's anything you could do if you didn't have specialized equipment where you could get this handle on. Yes, this this athlete has a little better variability, or this one doesn't. Yeah, that that's a that's a tough one, Joel. And I I agree. I I think there's totally I think. Part of being a good coach is you you learn those patterns to pick them up, and it, it's not always something you can put in words. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you, just like an athlete learns to pick up information to, about the game and how to deceive their opponent or something. As a coach, you learn to pick up these kind of things that you are maladaptive and stuff. So, yeah, I think you, things like that. You know, I, I've I used to do a lot of trail running, and 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 um, I know one of the things that really separates elite trail runners is how they run downhill. Mm. And because they, um, when you're novice, you're worried about falling, so you're break, 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 break mm -hmm. all the way down the hill. Whereas elite people are, they're basically danced down the hill. Their ground contact time is like a half of the one is because they're just bouncing across the thing. So, yeah, I think it's it's sports specific. I think you know identifying. I, I agree. You can kind of notice some things about the rhythm and the fluidity of the movement. Uh, I like the word staccata, stochastic. That's like that's a great staccato. Mm -hmm. a great description of it. So yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think it's, you know, you have to kind of trust what you, you, you feel and you kind of identify as patterns that are, are maladaptive because you're right without some fancy tracking equipment, you're not measuring angles and things like that. Yeah, no, it's not <laughs> to get the equipment. Yeah. It's not always easy. I know I, what's cool is in the end of your book, you talk about like the sonography for like 500 bucks. I was like, I need to get that. It sounds amazing. Yeah. But, and there's coming, there's coming, you know, there's iPhone apps that can do kind of basic biomechanical things and dart fit. If you really wanted to do a, a bit of work in it, it you know, it, it is kind of a more of a time suck than the money yeah. one now, I think to learn how to do it and stuff. But I think there's a ways you could, if you really wanted to. But um, I know coaches, sometimes you don't have and just to even set up all the recording things and do things is going to, you know, waste some of your practice time. And it's so valuable now on the field. Yeah. I, you know, the thing that just popped in my head. So maybe if someone wants to do a master's thesis or something on this and needs an idea, I was like, well, what if you had like, I don't know, this would be a terrible control. I was like, all right, you need to have a <laughs> hill that's downhill at like, I don't know, 10, 15 degrees. And it's kind of rocky and uneven and have athletes like run down it and give them a score like zero through five on how like tentative they were. <laughs> yeah. And see, so you got hurt the most at the end of the year. I, I swear, <laughs> I'm sure that like you said, like the, the more elite perceivers of instability on the downhill probably can deal with that in a similar way and on a dynamic court on some some level, at least. I, I, yeah, for sure. I think like I did this one episode on I called it educating a coach's attention. So I think it's like coaches learn to pick up these things visually and, and things in it. I think it's, some of them are like hard to just put into words, but you kind of recognize them when you see them. Yeah. You know, I, I know you wrote about donor sports in the book. It makes me think that maybe like something like a you know, trail running for one, for sure, with like a difficult trail or parkour could be good for the variability in that perspective, just general locomotion, dealing with obstacles, having the ability to 
not get hurt. Actually, it was just popped in my head is I wonder, like, you know, football players do track a lot. And you have a lot of football players who are really good hurdlers, too. And then you have the, some who are sprinters. And I kind of wonder, is like, would the hurdlers get hurt less than the sprinters? That would be an interesting study yeah. to take a look at, too, if you could, like, go it out, you know, plot that out. But, um, yeah, the, there's, there's interesting ideas for of this donor sport idea that, you know, training in one sport can kind of give you the um, capacity kind of help you with your, your main sport. I know a lot of football coaches talk about wrestlers, right? People that do wrestling are kind of have a distinct advantage because they understand position and leverage and all these kind mm. of things. So, yeah, I definitely think it, there's lots of ideas for research there for sure. Yeah, with the wrestling, yeah, Jeremy Frisch, who's works with a ton of youth, he works with more uh, college level and beyond athletes as well, but he works with a lot of youth sports and he gave an anecdote of like the best like soccer, the, one of the best like soccer players he knew in terms of leveraging position was like also in judo, like at, from a young age and like that being a donor sport. and. It almost seems like all the stuff that if you just let kids like in a room and just let them have fun or let them out in nature that they're going to kind of do anyways. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I think as kids, we just you come up with the greatest constraints and ideas. And um, in the book, I talk about, you know, the alternative to, to learning uh, agility techniques is tag. Right. That's a game that we invented as kids and we play because tag is driven by your catching the information from someone else, which instead of a cone or agility ladder or tires or something. So yeah, I, I think kids are naturally good at this. And I've even seen like practices you hear, you show up in that little early, there's kids playing around laughing, having fun and doing sing crazy things. And then practice starts. <laughs> <laughs> Silence. Let's do these organized drills. Okay. <laughs> then, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, obviously we need, coaches you know to come up with i but i think we could we could also learn a bit from what kids come up with yeah, yeah i've i've been man i i've been in a gym situation where this wasn't my gym but like i saw there, there was a guy renting out gym space who's like an ex like football player or something and he had like all these like eight-year-olds there and before the session started like the eight-year-old they're like playing tag and trying to do cartwheels and laughing and having fun and then it starts and like and the worst thing was the parents were there too watching it and someone was like oh and like and then yeah. none of the kids are having fun anymore and they're all just doing these like quote-unquote speed drills i'm like oh this is a train wreck <laughs> yeah so yeah i've had i've had the opposite of fine effect and other coaches told me this with if you use a lot of the constraints ideas you actually sometimes get parents saying you know, I thought I'd pay you to coach them. <laughs> You're, they're just playing and you have to explain to them. Uh, that's how we're coaching, right? Um, they want to see the lines and the drills and the lots of coach saying a lot of things. And, you know, we have to kind of change their view about what, what we're, we're after in, in coaching. Yeah, that's like the paradox, right? Like, because mm -hmm. especially in the private sector, like, and, and this, the, and that's where all the youth sports is. It's not like college mm -hmm. strength and conditioning where I get, I have you and you have to do what I say. And, the, you know, no one's here to like, outside maybe mm -hmm. the head sport coach or something, but it would be, you know, like, uh, and I was even thinking about this, like, uh, like if you called it eco dev for dummies, like less people will buy it, but like a parent's like a super easy mm -hmm. to understand, like that being circulated, maybe that eventually will help turn the tide, right? With, I hope so. Yeah, people. yeah, for we'll sure. Because definitely, parents can have a big influence on a lot, a lot of these things. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I know super limited time. So I do want to ask this quickly. I, I, all the differential learning stuff. Maybe we can, you know, connect mm -hmm. down the road or something. But for sure, yeah. So quickly, I just find it interesting because I feel like this type of stuff, I mean, I I guess more of a strength coach. I'm actually starting to coach like my daughter's soccer team, which has been amazing. 
Uh, mm-hmm. And so to me, sport is sport. Learning is learning. It's all fun. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you feel like more sport or strength coaches, like like physical prep, are interested? Like, do you get where do you feel like a lot of the interest is from this type of work? Um, I would say it's generally more the skill, okay. you know, sports oh, cool. coaches. But I think a lot of, you know, excitingly, a lot of PT oh, cool. uh, rehab people are starting to get into this. You know, maybe there's a different way to do this. But yeah, no, but I definitely think I think the critical thing, all these things could be connected better. Yeah. Strength and co- conditioning and skill, if they, t- you know, just we talk to each other more and had kind of a similar goals and things. So, yeah. So, yeah, would, there's definitely a lot of S&C people starting to get into these ideas, too, for sure. But in general, I think, it, it, yeah, it's more of the coach, the skill coaches, if you want to call them that, for sure. Of course. Yeah. I was just curious, yeah. I guess, just in the world yeah. I live in, you know, yeah. especially like the uh, like emergence of Michael Zufo and them. And like, it's kind of mm-hmm. like strength coaches who are starting to get into the the skill so i was kind of curious yeah that's happening a lot with the teams i work with too like everyone's recognizing this skill acquisition motor learning potential and it's getting thrown on snc coaches to suddenly learn it sure. <laughs> and, 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 and expand their role yeah which I, they, I, you know a lot of them really embrace it and do a great job with it yeah so i i don't know if you have like two minutes to answer this one that'd sure. be awesome okay so for the people i know a lot of strength coaches listening to this and and i think that it's kind of like, okay, well, I know this for learning. I mean, my, and my first thought as well, so I can learn to teach a clean better. That does, that's great, but does that transfer, right? And so it's almost mm-hmm. like where all this comes to a head is if there was like an attractor in a sport that was missing and I can like, maybe there's a medicine ball drill that fits variability in that attractor well. This could be a whole show. But I, I'm just curious if you have any general guideposts for how strength coaches can most effectively use this kind of information if they're not the ones out there directly coaching that, that skill. Do you feel like there's areas that are the most effective? Uh, How they can kind of best get the things to transfer? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, There's a few kind of things I, you know, you know, I think, you know, trying to come up with, I call it converging constraints. Is there a different ways you can try to get the same movement pattern? Like the Tim Tebow, uh, all the things we came up with. I think the more different ways you get at that, I think the better it will stick in the end. Um, I think adding kind of some pressure in, in actual practice some kind of consequences, some filming people, getting them kind of self-conscious because those that's the situations that tend to make the things fall apart. Because I, I think you probably see the same thing. A lot of times you can get the movement you want in practice and then they get the competition, they go back mm. to the old thing. So I think getting them used to a little bit of pressure and stuff, pressure proofing it is that's the two biggest things that I, I try to do. Yeah, yeah, pressure. Yeah, for sure. That's a huge one. But like, like just in the scope of the weight room, like, I mean, just doing like, like if you have a baseball Coaching baseball, just doing like medicine, variable medicine ball throws where there's a little bit of very, you know, constraints led approach that is a similar version of that skill. Like you find that could be a valuable thing or is like any general guidelines. Yeah, for sure. Um, Actually, some of the teams that I've worked with in baseball are doing this really interesting thing to stretch pitchers out in spring training, if we're going to have one this year, but (laughs) in past spring Mm -hmm. trainings, they get them to throw a few innings. And then they immediately, or even one inning, and then they immediately go to the weight room and continue on doing some related exercises. So they don't want them to stress of throwing the ball a hundred times right mm-hmm. away, but they realize some, if I can get them to do some of the same movements with different, a little more variable, you know, get, and then it can kind of stretch them. It's an effective way to stretch them out. Cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm sure yeah. we could talk about that forever. It's like my time is short. <laughs> it's like I'm trying to squeeze a show yeah. into a question or two, but I just want yeah. to hit that area of yeah. applicability. Okay, if people want to learn more about you, Rob, check out your book. Uh, could you just tell them where to find you? And I know you've mentioned your book, but could you tell people where to get it? Yeah, so the book's How We Learn to Move, A Revolution in uh, the Way We Coach and Practice Sports Skills. Perceptionaction.com is kind of where all my stuff is, the podcast and the book and, and everything I do. So if you're interested, check it out. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much. I know you got to run. You're welcome, really Joe. Your time. No problem. So yeah, sorry. I had uh, lots of meetings starting the semester. So, but yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the show. Appreciate you all being here. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest.